0: Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors who might be here. We are currently going through a series in the morning of the seven churches, and then at night the um, gifts of the Holy Spirit and um, to help us better understand the um, way God deals with his church and that he's always dealt with the same way, and there is no uh, cessation of the gifts as we've looked, and we mention them as we go along. And so... Um, why don't you turn to uh, Romans 12, please? We'll be looking at our first text in Romans 12 and then at uh, 1 Corinthians 12. The message tonight is entitled, The Gifts of Helps, Administrations, Leading, and Mercy. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are like limbs to a body. It's nice to have feet, arms, and legs. Now, you can live without them, but uh, it sure helps to have them. It makes life a little more um, easy, more enjoyable. And uh, the uh, church is the same. A church without gifts, like a body without limbs. Remember, the various gifts are made effective by the Holy Spirit. Much like our nervous system uniquely uses the various parts of the body to send messages and they respond and it coordinates. And that's the same with the spirit of God. Every time we get together tonight in the morning, the midweek, God puts everything together in terms of the helpers, their gifts, all that. It flows and he's done that for the last uh, nearly 40 years and uh, he takes care of it. Now, we have studied 13 of the gifts in our series so far and I've been able to observe the unique function of the body of Christ the church the body has many members yet it's one body one head the head gives the orders no one part of the body is uh, complete in itself um, but all the body put together comprises a healthy functioning body and um, rather than being in competition they are in complement to each other even as a husband and wife are not in competition but they're complements to each other the gifts and callings of God are designated sovereignty by God severally as He wills and as He has given a measure of faith to each person in proportion. These are supernatural gifts. Again, I will repeat it all the time, they're not natural talents or abilities or something you learn. They're called supernatural gifts. Often they may uh, enhance a talent or something. They may complement, but not necessarily. But you must distinguish the difference between the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are supernatural, from talents and abilities that come naturally or learn. All right? So, as we continue our series of the gifts, we want to look at four more. First, the gift of helps. Second, administrations. Then, leading. And then mercy. So let's begin here with the gift of helps in 1 Corinthians twelve, twenty-eight. 28. Um, right after healing, it says, he's denying the gifts there. He says, helps administrations. And um, we already saw the variety of tongues. So here is where we find these uh, first two gifts. And notice the word helps there. Um, it means relief, support, rendered assistance. And it appears only this time in the New Testament, but it is manifested in word and deed throughout the scriptures. And notice it is in the plural. Paul says this in Second Timothy 4.11. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable for me for the ministry. So here Mark, without doubt, has the gifts of helps. Now we know the history of Mark. He wimped out in the first missionary journey. Um, all of us have failed at one time or another, but he um, turned and he became a very um, helpful person towards Paul. In 1 uh, Corinthians 1615 Paul again states the household of Stephanas had devoted I like the old King James word addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So again as you're born again you go to God seeking those gifts not everybody has every one of these gifts not anyone or everyone has only one gift I believe you have more than one gift but you have at least one gift 1 Peter 4 10 tells us okay. Um, they work in multi combination. Paul the Apostle in Romans 16 9 and 10, and 11 and 12 says, Greet Mary who labored much for us. So there are always people that God anoints and calls to come alongside. They're in the backdrop. They don't call attention to themselves. They're doing the work that God has called them to do. They have the gift of helps. If a person's always pointing out to what they're doing, they don't have the gift or they're messing up the gift. One of the two. The deacons took care of the widows in the church in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Remember when they were murmuring about the Grecian Hebrew and against the Hebrews and everything else, that they were paying favoritism. Um, these are, there are always few in number faithful to fulfill their ministry. Um, it seems that we have a difficult time in, in uh, staying on track with the Lord. Uh, I am amazed at how many people are more sensitive to hear the voice of God to call them out of ministry than into ministry. <laughs> we have kind of that, that special hearing to be called out, but not to be called in. You know, and it's carnality. Uh, if God gives you a gift and expects you to use it for the rest of your life on this earth. Uh, for the glory of God, for the body of the church, and not simply to just back off and sit. If you think you have problems, fix the problems. Fix them while you're running. Don't sit on the sidelines. Uh, sitting target is easy for Satan. Fix them while you're running. Now, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, uh, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so the encouragement to keep uh, doing what God has called them to do. At the Bema seat of Christ, you know, uh, there will be revealed the motive of the heart. And that's what God will reward uh, each of us, um, regardless of our gift. It says there um, in um, 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Uh, it says, uh, each one's works will become clear. For that day will declare it. Because it will reveal by fire. The fire will test each one's works, what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built is on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone works is burned, then he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet it is through fire." Because the motive of the heart is the judgment there in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. So in other words, we've said it over and over again. God does not reward me for what I do or how much I do, but he rewards me why and how I do it. If I bring attention to myself, I glory in myself, that's about all the reward I'm going to get right here on earth. Now the gift of helps... As seen in the Old Testament, I want to give you some passages. Moses was uh, advised by his father-in-law, remember, in Exodus 18. Jethro, to train and delegate ministry to others, to not weary the people or himself. And um, he would then attend to the weightier or the more important matters. And so, um, here again... Uh, the gift that God dispersed. God told Moses to, to, to choose out from the hundreds and the fifties, so on and so forth, and he sets them up, and God anointed them with the gifts to be able to do those things. Uh, they weren't natural talents. The gift of helps was without any doubt active among uh, these men. Joshua, uh, in Joshua 1 1, is called the minister, assistant, or servant of Moses. He had to have uh, the gift of um, helps here uh, to relieve and assist Moses adequately. And you know the, uh, the burden that Moses had, and he attended him constantly. Um, I think of Mario and myself, how God's put us together. Me and Mario have known each other since we were 14 years old. We, he was out on the beach. I was here on the balcony. We both got saved at different times, and God put it back together. And uh, he's got uh, one of the gifts that he has, the gifts of helps. And also administration, and um, um, it just works great when God is the one that's doing the work. Now, Elisha was um, the servant of Elijah. Uh, He tended to the needs of Elijah. First Kings nineteen twenty one. He did not consider it a burden. But a privilege, not an imposition. Too many today in the church feel it's an imposition to serve. Listen, it's a privilege to serve. That God would call you or me and endow you with gifts to do what he's called you to do. Amazing. If we're not careful, we get into this um, multicultural indoctrination of entitlement. This is what you're entitled to. You're entitled to go to hell and fall under the judgment of God. Is that okay? Nothing else is entitlement. It's a privilege to serve God. That you would be able to serve in the body of Jesus Christ, that you would be able to serve the people of God when you have absolutely no qualification apart from that which God gives to you or myself. It should put us in the proper perspective of being humble. Every one of us. Be careful of the secular progressive indoctrination that corrupts your Christianity. um, That causes you to be divided as Christians. You know, by your race, by your culture, by your color, by whatever it is. As Christians, we don't let anybody divide us in Christ. Regardless of your nationality, regardless of your culture, regardless of your color, your skin. It doesn't matter. We are brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. We are one in Christ Jesus. And these are our marching orders, not the political, multicultural indoctrination. And much of that has crept into the church. So churches are fractured and they're run like corporations rather than the body of Jesus Christ. And that's sad. Gehazi was a servant of Elisha. He carried out Elisha. Um... um, proclamation to Naaman, uh, Elijah told him to um, go out, um, Gehazi carried out Elisha, Elijah comes first, Elisha with an S, H comes second, and remember that Naaman came in 2 Kings 5.10, uh, he was a leper, and that captive little girl told him, you know, there's a prophet in Israel, and he can heal you from this. He went down there, and he sends them out there. He knocks on the door, and he thought that Elijah would just come to the door and, you know, do some magical thing and puff. And he got all offended because he sent a servant to him. And, um, you know, his servant said, hey, just, what do you got to lose? You know, just go dip yourself. You don't get healed, big deal. And, you know, he got down there, and you know the rest of the story. Um, he attempted to misuse his servants, though, because when Naaman came back, he was so amazed that he was healed. And he wanted to reward Elisha. But um, he said, no, I take no money, nothing. And so Gehazi went after him and said, hey, listen, some of the prophets students came back from the school of the prophets, you know, and, you know, they need some Babylonian garments and the silver and that. And he, oh, yeah, here it is. And when he came back in, uh, Elisha said, uh, Gehazi, where'd you go? He says, nowhere, my master. What a perfect answer. He ran after gold, silver, the Babylon garments. He went nowhere. The leprosy of Naaman came upon him. Misusing your gift, misusing the, the trust that God gives to us, that we would manipulate it and abuse people or, or, or merchandise God's people. God help those who do that. You know, um, when we all first started in Calvary chapels, everybody was all humble and young and stupid so that God didn't have any problem. And then after a while, everybody started to get a little successful, got doing the work. And all of a sudden, some of these guys you can't even approach. You can't even get a hold of them on the phone. Not that I want to. But um, they've lost perspective. Everything they have, everything I have has been given to me of God. What do you have that you have not received, Paul tells the Corinthians? Absolutely zero. Everything has been given to me by God. Therefore, I have nothing to boast about. Perspective. The gift of helps in the New Testament is also very evident. Um, the women helped Jesus in his ministry. Listen to Luke 8, 1 through 3. Now it came to pass afterwards that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, okay, she was healed. She was demon-possessed. She's not a prostitute, as always the Catholic Church presents her. I don't know why they do that. Out of whom had come seven demons. And Jonah, the uh, wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance, the gift of helps. These women had it. They provided. They ministered, never calling attention to themselves. The women who served Jesus were at the cross, uh, it says, there were also women looking down from afar, among whom Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother um, of James the less, and Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him, there's the word, when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Mark 15, verse 40 and 41. So we see the gift, very evident. The gift of helps is valuable, very valuable, yet all of us are responsible to help, it is our, when it's in our power, and we shouldn't have to be asked. So we've been looking at the gift of health, but that doesn't mean that if I don't think I have the gift of help, that I, I don't have, I, I, I'm not going to help any anytime. No, no, no. It's not what they're talking about. Okay? There's natural things that we just, you know, someone falls down, you help them, you pick them up. You don't say, well, I don't have the gift of help. You just have to wait till somebody has it, buddy, you know? You just don't do that. Um, Our Lord emphasizes this by the parable of the Good Samaritan, identifying himself as that Samaritan in Luke 10. The question was, who is my neighbor? The one in need. When I'm confronted with a need, if I'm the only one around, guess what God is doing? He wants me to meet the need. So if God shows you a need during the week, don't call us. You meet the need. But, but it, it may cost me all. Oh, okay. <laughs> you see, sometimes we're good organizers, but, you know, we can get people together. We can make calls. But if God shows you a need, he wants you to meet it. You see? Very important. You got to be Practical. James 2.14-17 uh, through 17 tells us that faith without works is dead. Some say that James and Paul contradict each other, but of course Paul is talking in Romans of works to earn salvation, prior to salvation, and we can't use none of that. But James is talking after being saved, then works come from our life. We just studied in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good work that we're prepared beforehand that we might walk in them, right? Um, so God is, is, is in it. Um, But a careful examination of those two paths, again, is important. People always try to pit them against one another, um, and they don't look at it from the different perspectives. The love of God is verified only in word and deed, which results in help. Listen. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word, or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John three seventeen and 18. Now, having said that, you cannot meet everybody's needs. And you shouldn't meet everybody's needs. And you shouldn't meet a person's need all the time. As you become Santa Claus. And they don't depend on the Lord. So you've got to ask God for wisdom. Lord, do I help him? Do I not help him? Somebody may maybe really needs the help and you seek the Lord. says, yeah, help him. Then at other times you don't seek the Lord and you help him. But God says, don't help him. I'm trying to get his attention. And you're messing things up. I can be an obstacle to God. So the gift is legitimate, but I got to say, Lord, should I help? Is this now? So I've got to depend on the Lord. So he directs and guides me. Not just like cookie cutters. Well, you know, just run on it. On, on natural reasoning. The gift that helps will be manifested and exercised in a humble manner, natural and loving way. So as not to bring attention to oneself, so as not to make the person indebted. In other words, if you have the gift that helps and God says, you know, I want you to help that person financially, don't walk up while they're fellowshipping after a service, and say, Brother, God told me to give you a hundred dollars and don't don't worry about it. It's not me. Here it is. No, you're calling attention to yourself, you're humiliating that person before that. Do it in such a way That you don't bring attention. Get a money order. Mail it to them. Nobody knows who did it. Real simple. God will reward you. Remember the gift of help is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is supernatural. Empowered by God. And imparted to the individual. Not mere natural talent or ability. Or just your goodness to do Good things. So this is the gift of helps. Second comes the gift of administration. It's in the same verse there. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Uh, It follows it. The word administrations uh, comes uh, from the word which means to steer or to be a helmsman uh, behind the wheel, steering the boat, the ship. The word appears only this time in the New Testament and it's in the plural form again. So helps is in the plural, administration is in the plural. Um, The old King James Version translates it, governments. God always intended to govern his people, be it through a theocracy or a monarchy through men. The gift is manifested in various ways and levels in ministry, be it in children's ministry, and ushers' ministry, leadership, whatever it may be. So it's operable in different kinds of ministries, but it's that ability and supernatural gift to direct, to steer, to guide. Okay? Um, the problem arises as people of God do not depend on God to be directed by God. They neither depend on, on the they depend on their own experience or others to do the work. And they think that uh this gift is just telling people what to do. It's not what it is. They at times trust on human abilities of professionalism rather than those uh, called and anointed and gifted. And uh, often um, today, many churches are run like corporations, like CEOs, and they have professional staffs and um, they have their degrees. And again, I'm not against education. Get all that you can. And once you get it, get over it. And, um, but trust the gifts that God gives you. Depend on the Lord. Make sure He calls you. Make sure He anoints you. Make sure He directs you. And you will be effective. Very important. Often people plan and ask God to help um, or bless their own will and programs. They figure it all out and they say, Lord, bless this. It's much better to let God lead you and guide you and direct you. And see him bless what he wants to do. And too often we are establishing our own will. And then we ask God to bless it. Uh, I'd much rather do what God wants me. And see how he will bless. There's a big difference. The end result is that they end up being man-centered churches. Rather than God-centered churches. And the people become simply the means to their ends. Building their own kingdom. And they become more marketing techniques and uh, motivational speaking rather than teaching the Word of God. Uh, how it is that I can uh, trick you or motivate you and move you to, to integrate you into my little kingdom and how I've got everything done. And um, often, sadly, that's what goes on in many churches. There is no perfect church, by the way, nor perfect pastors or, or church leaders. We're all made of the same stuff. I am one just like you and among you and from you. I am no different than you. And that's important to always keep a perspective. There are only people who are trusting in the Lord and guide for them to guide, be guided by God. And those who are asking God um, to bless the direction that he will give. That they be sensitive to him. Uh, Lord, is this what you have? Lord, uh, when we purchase this building, Lord, is this the building? Is this you? Is it not you? Um, you know, when we're going to build the gym, Lord, is this you? Is it just us? What do you have? And then, of course, looking backwards, it's 2020. God was in it all the way. He took care of it. He, he did it all with no begging, no pressure, no nothing. Um, you know, but when we first got started, we, we just trust in the Lord. We don't know anything. We're still doing the same thing. We don't know what God wants to do. We just kind of just show up each day and let's see, okay, Lord, what's next? Um, people say, well, you know, we need to go back to the early church. Are you kidding me? You ever read the New Testament? The early church was messed up. You want to start with the church of Corinth? How about the Galatians? Are you kidding me? Thank God it was messed up. Because the letters that were written to them, they serve us. Because we're messed up. (laughs) The word of God instructs us, guides us, keeps us where it's supposed to be. It teaches us. Now the gift of administration is evident in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God used Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, and many, many others. They obeyed the guidance of God. They suffered the consequences when they did not obey. Very, very clear. And they followed and they gained the benefit when they did obey. Because they saw God work. It's always a choice. God doesn't force you to do anything. He he directs. He guides you. He he speaks to your heart. And you have a free will. So you're not a robot. You've got to obey and seek the Lord and stay on track with the Lord. In the time of the judges, in the um, transition to the monarchy... They rejected God, and they desired a man like, uh, like all the other nations for king. And remember, Saul was a people's king, not God's king. Yet God said, okay, Samuel, give it to him. And Samuel got all upset. They thought that people were rejecting him. And God said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. they are rejecting me. And uh, God used Saul um, and guided Israel through Saul. But Saul became disobedient, self-will, and he suffered the judgment of God. In the time of apostasy, God called the prophets to call the people back to himself to lead them. When the kings were corrupt, the priests were corrupt, and even the people had become corrupt, God raised up prophets many times, not of the Levitical priesthood or even um, those of the, of the priesthood outside of Levi, but common people like Amos, a fruit picker, a sheep breeder, and he would raise them up and anoint them and send them out to call the people back. The primary office of a prophet was to be the mouthpiece of God, to call back the people in repentance. Secondly, it was to declare future things, always second. The first is always to be the mouthpiece of God for repentance, to call the people back. Speaking to them clearly, directly through them, the authority was from heaven. Thus saith the Lord. The Lord said, the Spirit of the Lord put these words in my mouth. And you read many things like that in Scripture, inspired of God. God's words is objective truth, not subjective. Today, the problem is in the church. Much of God's word is being treated subjectively. The emergent church says that no objective truth can be learned from the Bible, so therefore they don't have sermons, they don't study, but they dialogue and they, you know, they, they just and nobody wants to be dogmatic on what that verse says because they don't want to fudge about doctrine. So let's just love one another and you know we can't really be sure. Are you kidding me? Why does he say study? Why does he say obey? Why does he say meditate? Why does he say, don't be deceived? Why does he say, I'll judge you if we cannot learn objective truth? Are you kidding me? The gift of administration also is found in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, Acts 15, uh, we see the early church government or administration, the first church council of Jerusalem, which... Centered on God leading through the men he had chosen. Acts fifteen twenty eight it says, they said, for it seems good. And you know, Acts 15 is when the Gentiles were trying to be put under the big yoke of circumcision to be saved. Okay. They started Antioch. They came on Jerusalem. And it says, for it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Notice the order. They say, well, you know, we've been around for a long time. We were with Jesus and we don't think that's right. No, it seems to the Holy Spirit and to us. Who's the representative of Jesus Christ? The comforter, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He will direct my words. He will direct you. He will guide you. He will bring all things back to remembrance. He will not speak of himself. He will speak of me. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The leaders followed the lead. Of the Holy Spirit. They came alongside to help and be part of the work of God with their gifts. There had been much dispute among the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about how to deal with the Gentiles, as you know. In Acts 15, 1 and 2, it says, uh, it is believed uh, this resulted from the situation again at Antioch. And Paul confronted Peter there about his hypocrisy. Uh, being um, swayed by the Jews when they went up there, and he was with the Gentiles eating pork chops, and then he tiptoed table over to the kosher table and grabbed a Hebrew national, and um, um, and Paul got in his face and rebuked him. Peter. Galatians two. Paul makes that very clear that he confronted Peter to the face. So they weren't perfect men, but they were men who acknowledged their error, and they repented, and they got back on track. The Jews were attempting to put a yoke on Gentiles their fathers couldn't bear. James stood up in verse 13 through 16, uh, and declared, Peter said, that God would again return to build the house of David. But first, he was choosing the people out of the Gentiles for himself and then ordered that the Gentiles keep themselves from sexual immorality, from strangled things, from blood and fornication. If they did that, they would do well and no greater burden would be put upon them. So um, be careful of what's being taught today a lot, replacement theology that teaches that you and I, the church... Is spiritual Israel. And that God is through with Israel. That is heresy. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 9, 10, 11. That God is not through with Israel. And there's a distinction between Israel. The wife of God that's been put away. By unfaithfulness. And the church of Jesus Christ. Which is the virgin bride. Looking for a wedding. And if you don't know the difference between a woman who's been divorced and put away. And a virgin bride. Go talk to your mom. Okay. Okay. You don't confuse them. There's a big difference. So anybody in majority of churches teach that we the church are spiritual Israel. Wrong. You get an F in the subject of Bible when you teach that. Okay? And it doesn't stand for fully. You flunk. Big distinction. See, they were wanting to make an extension of Judaism for Christianity. Never is it that. Never. Now Paul pointed out to the Galatians that James, Cephas, and John were pillars of the church to administrate and govern God's direction in Galatians 2.9. In fact, he does it kind of um, in, a, in a very sarcastic way. And those who thought they were pillars of the church, they add nothing to me. <laughs> I like Paul. In other words, as long as you agree with God, then we're in the same level. But men don't impress me. Because nobody has any great authority. Because all authority is in the Word of God. This is the only authority we have. Whether it be from the pulpit or the pew. It's the authority the Word of God gives us. We have no authority in and of ourselves. God raised up these men filled with the Holy Spirit, imparted and empowered them to steer... And direct the church and how beautifully they did that as we study the book of Acts and the epistles. Paul was an incredible example of the gift of administration, caring for the various churches, sending people to inquire, to correct, to discipline. In fact, Paul steered uh, the Galatians, as we have seen in the right direction about the yoke of circumcision with the Gentiles, appealing um, it to the home church, not settling for that going down to Jerusalem. And uh, making sure that that wasn't the letters went out. Paul stuck with the Corinthians through all their problems and carnality. And brought them through. Their church divisions. Their sexual sin. Their idolatrous sacrifices. All of that. He, he gave them the word of God. God directed and guided him. Second Corinthians 11.28. It says many of the epistles were collective, uh, corrective in nature. Dealing with... Um, with doctrinal problems, internal difficulties, steering them in the right direction by the gift of administration. Um, and, and again, when you read the letters, and, 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 and Paul would be attacked. that um, he changed his mind. Is Well, don't I have the right to follow God's lead? Remember, he went through Asia, and the Holy Spirit said, No, I don't want you to preach here, Bithynia, don't hear. Then a vision from Macedonia over to Philippi, right? Macedonia. God directing, and guided. Paul was spirit-led, spirit-filled, and spirit-controlled. But never a robot. But he sought the Lord for everything. So this was the gift of administration. Now, the gift of leading is next. And you find that in Romans, chapter 12, um, verse 8. It says, um, He who leads... With diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, those are the next two. They They're in Romans 12:8. Uh, the gift of leading, uh, the word leads means to stand before, to preside or to be over in terms of care for others. The King James Version, the old one, translates it, ruling. The word does not describe a hireling. The word does not describe some despot. The word describes one who is committed to the welfare of others. The word describes one who directs people with the conviction and purpose that God is the one who has called them, anointed him, and directing him to do so. Therefore, feeling the awesome accountability and responsibility that one day he or she will have to give to God. The Word describes one who is faithful to God and His Word caring for people. The gift, again, of leading is evident in the Old Testament. Moses led the people out of Egypt. I don't have to tell you that God called him, anointed him, and sent him, right? But God had to let him work with sheep for 40 years. You realize Moses was 80 years old when God called him to ministry, right? (laughs) Right? Okay, so that's, I'm 65, I'd have to wait 15 more years. He was not liked at all times, if you know that, if you've read Exodus. People, man, he just, they accused him, they charged him, they wanted to kill him. He was faithful and loyal to the people. When God called you and anoints you, You lead because God tells you. You do what you do because God tells you. You're a parent. You know that. Your children may love you. But they don't always like where you're leading them. But you're the parent. So you know where they have to go. And you lead them whether they like it or not. Trusting that when they grow up. They come back and say you know. Thanks for everything. And it's no different with us. God wants to lead us and we're like our children. But God knows which way we should go. Very important. Joshua led the people into the promised land. They were able to receive the good of the land. They were able to see the goodness of God in providing such men to divide the land, to lead them, to conquer the land and everything But we also saw compromise and sin, which cost them in many ways, right? So as long as God is using men and women, there is no perfect church. There is nobody who shoots 100% all the time. Um, But we also see that not only is there natural failure because of our human sinfulness and weakness, but there sometimes is a willful transgression and moving towards sin. And we see that also in God. Brings heavy judgment, right? So we have all these things, not to criticize these people, but to learn from them. And when God shows sin, it doesn't mean that we are able to go there and God will forgive us the same. Because God deals with us differently, right? So people's sins are no excuse or permission for me to be able to sin in that direction. Alright? David was a man after God's own heart. It cost him dearly, though. I wouldn't want to be David after Bathsheba. I think he was a miserable man. The various judges led the people back to God. As you know, the book of Judges was a cycle of bondage, freedom, deliverance, and back again, over and over again. Um, they returned always back to that bondage area. And yet God raised the prophets to lead them. And as long as they followed the prophet, God delivered them. They received the blessing. But the death of the judge, they go back into their sin, right? A cycle of defeat, willful. Now, if you're a Calvinist, you have to make one of two determinations. Either God predetermined that or the people chose to do it. If you blame God for predetermining the book of Judges, then how can God judge the people for their sin? He couldn't. The only way God can judge you for your sin or your mistake is because you are responsible. If he made you do it, then God's responsible for your sin and your error. Ridiculous. David the king led the people of God into great victory. He depended on the Lord for guidance. He'd go out, Lord, should I go up? No. Should I go up? Yes. Can I attack here? No way for the mulberry trees. The wind comes by. And God spoke to him very, very clearly. He said, well, I, you know, does he do that to you? Yes, God will direct and guide you. He's guided me for all these years. I've never heard the audible voice of God, but I know when God is directing and guiding. And sometimes God is guiding and I don't know it's him. I think it's me. And then with hindsight, I go, that was the Lord. And sometimes I think it's the Lord and I'm sure it's the Lord. And then later I say, no, that was me. Because we're human. You understand? But God is faithful. And He gave all the glory to God. So everything that happens in your life, it's the glories to God. Okay? All the good stuff, He gets the credit. All the bad stuff, you get the credit. Those are the rules. Simple. Don't blame God for your carnality, your sin, your stupidity. Alright? Well, you know, God will always do that. What would you do if your son, you know, he robbed the store or something? He said, well, you know, it'll help me to be smarter. You smack him. Well, Christians do it all the time. They blame God for their sin. You know, all things work together for good. That's not the context of that. Come on. We become like parrots, just muttering out scripture without the context, blaming God for our carnality and for our self-will and for our failures. Solomon led Israel into great prosperity and fame, as you know. God gave him wisdom. He didn't ask for his enemies. He didn't ask for money, for nothing but just wisdom. He was too young. He was like a child, not able to lead the people of God. And God says, because you didn't ask me for your enemies or for gold and silver, I'll give you wisdom and knowledge, and I'll give you all of that at the same time. And as long as he was dependent on God, he blessed him. He blessed him. God was with him. But then he... uh, he just got too smart for himself and leaned to his own understanding and started compromising, becoming unequally yoked with the pagan women and they, they took him away from the Lord. Added much hurt to his life. I've seen many men and women like that in the last 42 years. They used to sit where you sit. I heard him say, I would never walk away from God. I would never do that. Oh man, don't ever say that. Never say never. See, by the grace of God, I'll walk with Him, I'll depend on Him. If it weren't for the grace of God, there you and I would go. Darkness attracts us, it's our sin nature. Ezra, Nehemiah, led the people of God after the Babylonian captivity to rebuild the temple. God called them, anointed them, sent them. Fulfilling prophecy. Being good stewards. Good examples. Hard workers. Pointing people to God. The gift of leading is also found in the New Testament. The same word is used for the qualifications of bishops in 1 Timothy 3, 4-5. It says... Uh, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission, with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule, there's a word, his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Pastors and churches have forgotten that the qualification for the pulpit is not my degrees. It's my home. God's not interested in degrees. You can get a degree all you want. You can get a PhD. If God has not called you, anointed you, and gifted you, you are a danger to people. Because men will scent you, or you'll scent yourself and not God. And you will abuse the people. You will manipulate the people. And you will think you are so hot. Incredible. The word is used for the deacons in 1 Timothy 3.12. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. Same thing. The word is used for the elders who led the church in a caring manner. And um, their um, they're worth to be compensated financially, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17 and 18. Listen carefully. Let the elders who rule, there's the word. Well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads the, out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his hire. And so here again, it's God's leading, gifting. He's the one that's doing it. It's the only way the church can work the way God wants it. It's the only way church can be effective. Again, the church is not the building, it's you and I. The word is directed to Titus. In Titus 3, eight, he was to oversee the church at Crete. Um, he says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain, that's the word, good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And so here again, um, um, as churches were being... Set up and the gospel was being uh, sent out. God would raise up men and anoint them and gift them through these gifts. To do the work of ministry. To serve the people of God. Titus was told to have the people lead in good deeds in order to profit others in Titus 3.14. Listen. And let your people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be on. Un- fruitful. So even if you don't believe you have the gift, then you should be able to meet some needs, right? As God directs you and shows them to you, then you're to do that, not to pawn them off on somebody else. Paul used the word to identify those who had been uh, appointed by God over the church in First Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. He says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you To esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, but be at peace among yourselves. So identify these men, recognize these men, don't worship them. They're not better than you, but understand how God gives the gifts differently and severally to operate his church for the benefit of the people. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. So if there's not that recognition, that understanding, that camaraderie, that unity, then it's fighting back and forth. It's carnality, just like the Corinthians. That's what he's saying. Now the attitude regarding the gift of leading, notice... With diligence. The word diligence means with eagerness, earnestness, or haste. Paul was led among, along with Barnabas to the mission fields, you know, in Acts 13, 1 through 3. The Holy Spirit said, separate me, Barnabas, uh, or Barnabas and Saul for the work of the mission which I have called them. Later on it changes, Saul comes first all the time. But it's the Holy Spirit who called them and sent them out. The church didn't send out missionaries. The Holy Spirit called them out. Okay? I've never sent anybody out. People have come to me, you know, I believe the Lord's is calling me out. Well, let me pray for you. Go. I'm not God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. If I send you out, you think I'm responsible for you. mm Not me. I'm not God. Don't ask me for money. If God sends you, He'll take care of you. That's how you know He's called you and sent you. But if man sends you, you're always going to be the dependent on man, the arm of flesh. And when the arm of flesh gets tired of, of providing for you, then they cut you off and then you get mad and you get bitter. Well, was God in it or was it just man? Time is a test of all things, ladies and gentlemen. If God is the one who has called you and anointed you, he's going to take care of it. The call was unanimous. And the consensus of the teachers, the prophets, they gathered the church together in Antioch, fasted, they prayed, they laid hands on them, and then, being diligent about it, they saw them leave. They didn't send them out. They just agreed with the Holy Spirit's call to send them out, to go out. That's the way it should be. Today, people send people out on the mission field rather than the Holy Spirit. That's why so many missionaries fail. Because man sends them, not God. God warned and instructed the Ephesian elders of this responsibility of diligence through his own example in Acts 20, if you remember. He served the Lord and, uh, and them out of love in Acts 17, 20 through 21. As he was leaving, he speaks to the Ephesian elders. Uh, he served without considering himself in Acts 20, 22 through 24. And um, he left knowing he was innocent of the blood of any man having declared the full counsel of God in Acts twenty twenty five through 27. And he warned them regarding the flock that they um, had been appointed by the Holy Spirit to shepherd the flock of God. And many of them would rise up to bring disciples to themselves. And he warns them. He says, I've never taken a penny from any of you. I haven't robbed any of you. What an amazing chapter for leadership. This was the gift of leading Last comes the gift of mercy here in Romans 12, verse 8. Mercy, ilios, it means compassion by word and deed in order to aid one afflicted or seeking aid. The noun form appears 31 times in the New Testament. Vine's dictionary describes mercy as outward manifestation of Pity. Grace describes God's attitude towards sinners. Mercy is his attitude towards those in distress, saved or unsaved. God gives mercy even to the sinner, but he never gives grace to the sinner until they repent. Mercy is less than we deserve. Mercy gets caught up in the affliction or the need of the person, communicated even in the appropriate tone of voice. When you see somebody who maybe got hit by a car and you run across to their rescue, you don't walk up and say, hey, what's the matter with you? What were you thinking? Get up. You see they're broken. And even the tone of your voice, you say, hey, you're going to be okay. Just stay down. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be okay. Even your tone of your voice, you pity them. You come to their aid. This is mercy. Mercy is one of God's attributes. He is the Father of all mercies in Second Corinthians 1, 3, as you know. Peace is the result of either grace or mercy. The gift of mercy in the Old Testament is very evident. God would meet the, the priest at the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, as you know. And um, he says, and you shall put it before the veil, that is before the Ark of the Testament, before the mercy seat, that is over the testimony, where I will meet you. The seat of propitiation in Exodus 30, verse 6. God would meet the priest right there. The mercy seat. The Lord told Moses, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, longsuffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Exodus thirty-four six and seven, and many other passages. Now, today, this is taught by many of the positive confession people and a lot of the emergent church that this is a, 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 that as a Christian you need deliverance. Uh, From your past, you got the demon of gluttony, the demon of this, the demon of that, and they're delivering Christians. That's junk. The context is, if your parents were pagan and you don't repent, you will learn and maintain that lifestyle and even increase it to the next generation until that chain is broken. God doesn't punish you for your parents' sins. If you don't repent and you continue to learn from them, you learn faster, you learn more, And you keep passing it down to the next generation. There must be a break in that chain. You are delivered when you're saved. You don't get delivered in any deliverance ministry. Another ministry of carnality. Christians cannot be demon-possessed. How interesting you get the demon of lust when you're over your girlfriend's house at 3 in the morning. What are you doing there at 3 in the morning? You're carnal. You need to have hands laid on, but in a different way. The theme of Psalm 136 is God's mercy as it appears 26 times in 26 verses. Mercy. The gift of mercy is also found in the New Testament. Jesus spoke a parable to the Pharisees who trusted in themselves and despised others one day. The Pharisees prayed to himself, as you know, declared his self-righteousness. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful, propitious to me, a sinner. And Jesus declared that the publican went down to his house justified. But the Pharisee prayed to himself. That parable is there, not for me to criticize it, is there to warn me. To not be like the Pharisee. Because you and I have the capacity. You know what's amazing? When Jesus said, one of you will betray me this night. Have you read the scriptures? Every one of the twelve said, is it I? That's good. They knew they had the potential capacity to betray Jesus. Never say never. Barnabas certainly had the gift of mercy. He sold land and he gave money for the needy church. In Acts 4.37, benevolent also. Again, multi-combination of gifts, not just one. He took a second chance on John Mark. And again, he was his uh, uh, nephew. So there's a tie also there. In Acts 15.36-37. But Barnabas is probably one of the greatest disciples of the New Testament if you study his life. We need more Barnabas that take a chance on people. You see? Now, who was right, Paul or Barnabas? They're both right. They had two different calling, different gifts. And um, Paul couldn't afford a whiny pants on the mission field. And Barnabas said, well, I'll take him alongside and give him another chance. Different gifts, different administrations, right? Paul declared, blessed, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holding and accepted God, which is your reasonable service in Romans 12, 1. by the mercies of God. The scriptures declare mercy in various ways. It says mercy is tender, great, sure, new every morning, abundant, and so many other things. Look it up in a concordance. You have a computer, put in mercy, boom. It'll keep you there for a good while. The mercy of God. The attitude regarding the gift of mercy, notice, with cheerfulness, not thinking that you're being bothered, or that how blessed they are that you come to their help. <laughs> the word cheerful means with readiness of mind in delight. The word appears only this time in this form in the New Testament. The same root we get our word um, for the manner in which we're to give to God in 2 Corinthians 9 7. Are you ready for it? Hilariously. If you can do. Your mercies, the deeds hilariously, please don't do them. If you cannot give hilariously, please do not pollute our offering. Simple. This is mercy with cheerfulness. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think in Romans 12.3. That's self-righteousness. A critical spirit. God is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says. We studied that a couple, three weeks ago, two or three weeks ago in our in-depth study. His mercy is everlasting, Psalm 100, verse 5. His mercy endures forever, Psalm 106, 1. Our Lord was merciful to Peter as he appeared to him to restore him again in John 21. We are to come to the throne of grace with Boldness, to find grace and help, mercy in time of need in Hebrews 4.16, any time of day. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy, Matthew 5.7. You see, the unmerciful servant was told by the master, remember Luke, in Matthew 18.33. Shouldn't you also have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity, there's a word, on you? Remember, he master forgave him millions of dollars and he had a cold laborer him just pennies, and he grabbed him, threw him in jail. Again, that parable is not there for me to say, what a terrible man. That parable is for me. That I can do that. And I have to watch myself. All of us are debtors to forgiveness for sin committed against us. Particularly when There has been um, acknowledgement, confession, and repentance from that sin. And we are to give that forgiveness. There's only one problem. I can't forgive. And neither can you. Oh, we can say, yeah, little things that don't bother us. But you let somebody do something that just is really treacherous against you. Or something that just, and you'll find out real quickly how you can't. And you won't want to forgive. You've got to go to God. Only God can help me forgive. Because when God helps me forgive, even though I remember, I forgive. If I try to forgive, the more I remember. That's how you know whether you're yielding to God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness does not remember the sin. My forgiveness always remembers the sin. There's a difference. Remember, God will, you, no one will ever sin against you as much as you sin against God. We're debtors to forgive. This was one of the indictments of Jesus against the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23, as you know. The woes of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithes and mint and anise and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law of justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. Our Lord emphasizes the mercy of the good Samaritan as he imparted in Luke 10. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him, then Jesus said them go and do likewise in Luke ten, thirty six to thirty seven. Judgment without mercy is promised to those who judge without mercy. James two, twelve through thirteen. The warning by our Lord is against critical spirit that finds fault in everything. You know the verse. The world always throws it in our in our face. Judge not, lest you not be judged; that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so, people always tell it to Christians. Well, it says, "Don't judge." No, it's not talking about that. It's saying, "Don't judge critically, finding fault in everything." We are commanded to judge. If you're a Christian and you're living with somebody, you're all mine. I have a responsibility to confront you, to pray for you, to call you to repentance. We have to make judgments. You make judgments over here when you drove over here tonight. Red light, you stop. Thank God you wouldn't have been here. You better make some judgments. The believers called to judge everything according to the word of God and to call people to accountability. I don't know the motive why you did it, but I can tell you if it's sin or not. If I see it, and so can you. The gift of mercy is one of the most beautiful gifts operating in the body of Christ, for it is the gift of God extended to an individual in compassion to another, regardless of their situation and failure. But it must never be interpreted as permissiveness. And it shouldn't be exercised as permissiveness. Too many times Christians are so quick to kill their own wounded. We are self-righteous, think we aren't capable of such a sin. <laughs> We're quick to judge, setting ourselves as a standard, as a terrible mistake. We declare who is saved and who is not saved. We rebuke when we should exhort. We cast off when we should bind up. It proves that we're carnal many, many times. Confrontation is never for mere castigation. But for restoration, sometimes castigation must come first because of the rebelliousness and the unwillingness So there must be consequences to a Christian who does not repent of their sin. Paul said, you cast that young man out of the church who's sleeping with his stepmother. And when he repented, he says, now let him back in. Simple. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, longsuffering, Colossians 3.12 says. Wow. This is the gift of mercy. So, here you have four more gifts of the Holy Spirit that are essential for the operation of the church of Jesus Christ while here on earth. It is His church. He's the head of the church. We are the different parts of the body. He gives the direction. He gives the message. He gives the gifts. He gets all the glory. And I get to obey but he doesn't force me to obey. And I get to see God work in a way that I would never see him work. The gift of health, the gift of administrations, the gift of leading, the gift of mercy. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your grace and love. Deal with our hearts and more. We thank you for tonight. And we pray that you continue to instruct us, Lord, raise up men and women to serve you, disperse your gifts sovereignty, as you will, Lord, and that we would just follow your lead. We just thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness throughout the years, Lord. And so, Father, we just um, um, cast ourselves before you, Lord, that you would have your way with us. As you are praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, um, maybe you over the Internet. God has brought you to be saved, to repent of your sins. But you're the only one that can make that decision. If you believe that Jesus is God and he's, um, He became man and died for your sins and rose from the dead, then the Bible says that you can call on His name. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. You've been listening to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is here to work on your heart. He doesn't pry His way into your heart, but He knocks on the door of your heart, and you're the one that has to give permission, yes or no. God's a perfect gentleman. He doesn't force anybody to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to go there. You can go to heaven if you repent. So if you see yourself as a sinner, this is your prayer to the Lord, and he's going to save you right now. So this is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.